Today's scripture reading is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 23. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have done. Um, Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tileam, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, you are not the head of the are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, 
He has also rejected you from being king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Faye. When we did the all call for a scripture reading team a few weeks ago, I don't think some of them knew what they were getting themselves into. It's a pretty long passage. And actually, a third of the chapter has been cut out, so uh, it goes on longer than that still, but had to cut it off somewhere. Thank you, Faye. I want to start this morning with uh, just a quick embarrassing story of something that happened to me. I don't have to look very long in my personal catalog for an an embarrassing story. Keep many at hand for an appropriate occasion, and this is that. Uh, This all starts um, back in college, Um, just... I deleted my Facebook in college. I wasn't using it. And I have this tendency of just kind of like jettisoning whatever I'm not using. So I wasn't using Facebook. I deleted the account, so they say, and uh, and, and, and was done with it. But for years, for, for weeks, months, and years after that, I had this muscle memory in my left hand that whenever I sat down to a computer or a laptop or a keyboard, because the F key is right under my uh, index finger, I would type face into the uh, browser as soon as I opened it. I was just so used to going to Facebook uh, that, I would, that my hand would instinctively do that. And I would do that off and on for years, years after not having a Facebook account anymore. And I'd say, oh, how am I still doing that? What is, what is that? I'm just spacing out and uh, going to Facebook and closing the web browser because I don't have an account anymore. A few years later, after all that had been kind of going on and still going on, I landed kind of my first real, or I'll just say first uh, salary job at a company selling security cameras. And uh, got to my desk that day in the, in the cubicle uh, area, and they said, we have some HR videos that we want you to watch, so why don't you sit down here and watch some of them and as part of your training. So I sat down at the computer and began to open the web browser, and what did I do? I typed face and went to Facebook login immediately. Like the first thing I did on my first day of my job was go to Facebook. And I think, oh, and like this all happens in a sequence of a second is I think, oh my goodness, I need to exit out of this. On my first day, caught on Facebook, this can't be. Well, I turn around and there's my boss looking at my screen from over my shoulder and he just goes, hmm, Facebook, we'll have to break that out of you. You know, that habit. And uh, he didn't know how right he was. Yes. <laughs> Break this out of me, my fingers, what is happening? And, uh, but I couldn't tell him, you know, I don't have an account because that makes me lazy and crazy. So <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> so that's not going to happen. So I just tried to say sorry and moved on uh, and, and probably did it again after that. But an embarrassing moment for me on the first day of a job that I really wanted. And it, it serves just to kind of illustrate what is a common experience, hopefully not for you, this weird neurotic hand movement where you type face on a keyboard every time you sit down. I don't still do it. God freed me of that, thankfully. Uh, but, but, uh, but this illustrates what is a common experience for a lot of us, and that is sort of an, an impulsive disobedience or kind of like a, a muscle memory within us, this internal impulse that goes against what we know to be right, especially in, in regards to, to God, to obeying God. And the scripture passage that we just heard read really demonstrates this very well. 
Paul, in his, uh, one of his letters to the Corinthians, uh, writes that a lot of things in the Old Testament happen as an example, that we might learn from that and do better. This is an extreme example story of what not to do, a high level of disobedience before God that the king of Israel does, Saul, and this disobedience is ultimately turns out to be a rejection of God himself. We're in this Advent series called Looking for a King, and this first week is Saul, next week will be David and Solomon. If you're familiar with the history of Israel, it's okay if you're not. All of these kings are lacking in something and point to Jesus. But this, we'll take one snapshot of Saul's life here, which spans more chapters than this, and it is not pretty. It is a, it is a terrible example of how to conduct ourselves before God, and yet there will be a piece of it that we identify with, that piece of this kind of impulse to push back on God, to resist, to not obey him, that is like muscle memory within us. We're not even always sure where it comes from, but it's there. Maybe we hate it. Maybe we're apathetic. It's there, and we see it clearly here in Saul. And so we'll see that through the course of this story, Saul and his disobedience has rejected God himself. That's kind of the main takeaway from this morning. Often, disobedience itself doesn't really seem like a rejection of God himself. We often view obedience as kind of this external action that we do before the Lord. So maybe we think of like the high road and the low road or something, right? God's way would be the high road. Take the high road sometimes. Try not to take the low road. That's not really me. But I finagle some sort of middle path here where I'm not like, you know, down low, but still obedient to God on some things. We like call it like a selective disobedience. That's what Paul, I mean, uh, what Saul embodies here. That is actually a rejection of God himself, as we'll see as the story unfolds. And it's very subtle, but it is so true that that is the case. And Saul demonstrates that for us this morning. Frankly, Saul demonstrates it in such a way that it kind of gets a little spooky. Like, it, was, it, it went from funny and what, what's going on with my hand typing thing to actually, like, spooky on that first day, where I was like, I'm doing this still, like, and I need to work to not do this. Well, often isn't our obedience before God the same way. I'm still disobeying God, or I still don't have this, and suddenly we're, we cry out to him for help because we need that help. It's more internal than we realized. It's more natural impulse than we realized to push away from our creator, from God. Let's look at this story uh, first with the uh, first point of... of uh, disobedience diagnosed. We're just going to look at Saul's disobedience in the context of this story, particularly in these first seven verses, which really capture the mission that God has sent Saul to do. Now, this is a a tough command that he gives him. It's harsh, and I will give more of an explanation of this in just a moment. But for now, just read how what God says to him is, I want you to go to these Amalekites, and they are to be devoted to destruction. Spare no one. And what's the rationale in verse 2 that God gives uh, for this? He says, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up from Egypt. Okay, Israel hasn't been up from Egypt for two for a while. It's been a couple generations. So we're going back kind of into the archives. God has noted something that, that has happened in the past to Israel. And what exactly is this? We won't go there right now, but if you want to write down 
Exodus 17, if you're doing that, uh, Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 25 are the two main chapters where the Amalekites come up again, and I'll read some key verses from there. First, Exodus 17, just to set the context of God's just told Saul, I want you to go wipe this people out. Let's find out a little bit more about that people and what that relationship might be. So in, in, uh, in Exodus 17, um, it's recorded the battle between Israel and the Amalekites. And then here's what God says at the conclusion of the battle, when the Lord has won the battle. He says, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. The Lord will have a war with Amalek from generation to generation. Incredibly harsh words to hear from God. I'm at war with every generation after you, Amalek. Why? Why is these strong words from God from a people attacking Israel? Well, go to Deuteronomy 25, and you, it fills in some details on this, on this feud. Here's, here's Moses, the Lord speaking through Moses, remembering their history as a nation. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all the enemies around you in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Okay, that's a little bit of a fuller picture of what the Amalekites did. They pounced on this wandering people of God and not fighting the soldiers in the front is not what it sounds like. It says they cut off their tail, those who were lagging behind. The people lagging behind in an army, who who is that? It's probably the young, the elderly, those who are ailing and not able to keep up with the large group. So we can see a little bit more of the injustice of even how this battle started with the um, 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 uh, Amalekites. Sorry, I knew I was going to kind of, at some point, matter of time. Amalekites, uh, and, and why God would command this, perhaps, Now, I will say, even if we could kind of chart out all the sins um, of the Amalekites, that wouldn't give us a rationale for this command, right? This is from the Lord. This is exclusive from God at a unique time in Israel's history. And I'll, I'll talk about it in just a moment. But get the full picture between what this nation did to Israel as they are wandering. A very dirty, at least to say the, we, the, to say the least, way of engaging with this people. And God has set his face against them. And now... The generations have gone on, and King Saul is in place to fulfill this word of the Lord by destroying this people once and for all. Even if we see the Amalekites for what they are, though, this command of God to devote them to destruction is a harsh one. It's hard on our ears. I know I didn't enjoy reading that as I was preparing the sermon. There's probably many of you who it doesn't quite rub the right way. This is often a text and others that people go to to say, this is, a, this, is, this is a bloodthirsty God. Like a God that commands this is like he's out for blood. He's sicking his people on these people in this land who already live here. And how could you worship this God? We understand that this is a hard command, but historically we've already looked at this people, uh, the Amalekites here, and 
what we see historically often in the land is that there is a there are the nations that Israel is commanded to remove are almost certainly deeply entrenched in pagan worship, false worship that permeates their culture. There is historical, far outside the Bible, accounts of, of child sacrifice that was going on in these lands, um, horrible, horrible things that were happening. And I think at the baseline level, as we are a people of faith seeking un, um, understanding before the Lord, we understand that the Lord is just and we are an unrighteous people and we can imagine how unrighteous a people can get would the Lord not uh, hold his hand back. And so what's happening here is not really God saying, hey Israel, you guys are so good. You are so good. Why don't you take care of all the baddies for me uh, and then we'll all be good and you'll be good and the land will be good. That's not how this has gone. Israel has demonstrated a disobedience as well, but the Lord in his grace has called them and preserved them and held them, and he is building a holy people in a holy land and will not have that defiled by pagan worship. And so this is kind of the context. If you'd like to talk more about this, I'd be happy to because I certainly understand the difficulty of reading that. And yet I think we trust the Lord in this, that, that at a certain point the Lord had said, this is my justice. This people is to be no more, as harsh as that is. And now Saul is in charge of uh, um, carrying that out. And again, the people of Israel are under a covenant with God to obey him, lest they also be cut off from God and, and suffer the same fate. So God, it would be gracious of God to save one, one person, let alone one people that he brought out of Egypt. And so we still see the mercy of God even in this harsh reality of justice where wickedness and evil must meet the justice of God. So what happens here when Saul is given this mission and this command? He disobeys. In verse 9 we read, But Saul and the people spared Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs that was good, and they would not utterly destroy them. Why would Saul do this? Why would he not follow through on this? It's just, this is a serious question I have reading this. Like, why not obey? I know it's, it's clearly not a hang-up with harem, which, I, I, which is the Hebrew word for that devotion to destruction. It's not a hang-up with the command, for he does obey a lot of it, and yet he ch chooses to preserve some livestock. It's also not because he didn't know the history we just talked about with his people, because he says to the um, Kenaites, uh, or yeah, he says to that people group um, to, to go and depart lest they be uh, killed. That people group is actually descendant of Moses' father-in-law, uh, who he met. Um, if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, he's the big guy saying, lie, 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 around the fire. Uh, not Simon and Garfunkel, but the, uh, the other song. So... Um, uh, anyways, that's the descendants of him. And so Saul knows the relationship between these tribes and says, you depart, there's going to be destruction on the Amalekites, which he does not fully bring to bear. But he, so he clearly knows the history. He knows also what is being asked to him, and he's willing to do it to a certain point. 
But I think if we just try to diagnose Saul's disobedience here, we can, we can run through the whole story. We can go to verse 12 where we see his pride, where we see that Saul set up a monument for himself in verse 12. It's pride coming out of this, uh, this moment here. He's, he's aloof in the next verse, in verse 13. When Samuel finally finds him, Saul begins the conversation saying, Blessed be you to the Lord, I've performed the commandment. I mean, he's out in space right now. Not, he's beyond understanding of, of what is happening here. But, but then there's a lie. I have performed the commandment, as I just read, which he doubles down on in verse 20 when he says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, arguing with Samuel. There, there's greed that Samuel accuses him of. He says, you pounced on the spoil in verse 19. You've taken these, this livestock for yourself. You've pounced on the spoil. But the bottom line is, he's not attentive to God. As Samuel says in verse 22, he asks him, grant you the sacrifices that you wanted to offer wrongfully in God's name, fine. Is God delight in that as he does in listening and obeying? And you can try to slice this in so many different ways. Like, what Saul's motive is here? Is he like an impulsive liar? Is he just not clicking? Is he, is he greedy? Does he need this? And it doesn't even really matter with the multitude list of sins because baked into every verse of Saul's disobedience is, is a heart that's pushing away from God. It's an impulsive response to God that pushes him away, that, that disobeys. He has this mindset of, what can I get away from here? What can I get out of this? What, what, how can I kind of make a middle way here? And in the process of this disobedience and finagling and selectively uh, devoting some to destruction but saving a cow, and this is a rejection of God. It turns out to be fully a rejection of God. And so... That is disobedience diagnosed from any angle. What's going on is this internal thing in Saul that is manifesting in this multitude of sins before the Lord as a rejection of God himself, not just a plain, plain whatever disobedience, but an outright rejection of God. Let's look at the danger of disobedience because this is so subtle and so dangerous, a danger of disobedience. Saul's failure is not without significant consequences. If you were here last week, you remember that, uh, that we looked at 1 Samuel 8, and, one of, and, and it was the people of Israel demanding a king. We want a king. And one of the reasons they gave for wanting a king was they wanted someone to fight their battles. Well, it's debatable how well Saul even fought this battle because the Amalekites actually return again. They return again in the book of Esther when a descendant of Agag by the name of Haman plots to try to wipe out all of the Jews in the kingdom of Persia, essentially committing a genocide on the people. This remnant, again, we hear that there will be a war against God's people and the Amalekites from generation to generation, don't we? Even as we see the scriptures unfold, and there's the Amalekites again, plotting against the Jews, this this, this battle that's going on, and Saul is in place to protect his kingdom from this exact sort of thing, and yet in his disobedience, he's opened the door to future danger for the kingdom that he is to protect. 
And, and, and moreover, Saul has not upheld the words of God himself written in Exodus and Deuteronomy when God says, I want this people blotted out for what they did to my people and by extension what they did to me. And, and really, really, there's two major things. I mean, there's a lot of major things we look for in our leaders, political, whatever it may be, especially political leaders. We want, I think we want a couple things for sure. We definitely want someone who knows the law, Yes. Someone who understands the law as much as they can and abides by it and upholds it. And the second thing we probably want in our leaders is an understanding of our history. Of history, to learn from failures, to shape after that, to to learn from achievements and grow through that. And Saul demonstrates none of that. He does not see it important to uphold the law of God by his obedience here. Moreover, while he understands the history a little bit, it doesn't seem to bother him to learn from the past and try to protect his people. And so he nullifies God's law. He doesn't bring it out as a king. Moreover, he neglects the justice of God. Don't you just think of that Micah passage? What does the Lord require? Sacrifices do justly. Walk in mercy. Saul, do the justice of God in this moment, but he doesn't do it. And for this, Saul loses his throne. He stays on, yes, as king for many years, uh, but, but he, and there's, there's more to go into that, but he never has a son that sits on the throne. He's like a, what we call a, it's kind of a rude term, but a lame duck coach, you know, like a football coach. Everyone knows when the season ends, he'll be fired, so he'll just coach it out. This is Saul. He'll, he'll play it out until David steps into the throne. And, and he, so his heir, his, his kingdom has been taken away from him. His, his line has been cut off. But the most glaring aspect of this sequence is that Saul never seems to truly wrap his mind around how he's actually rejected God. There is a moment where he repents, uh, not, not printed in the bulletin because it was cut out of the last half of the chapter, but after Samuel tells him, you've been rejected from being king, guess what? Then is when Saul begs and pleads and says that he's sorry and admits he's done wrong. But this is only to stand further against God, is it not? The word of the Lord has now come. It's over. You're not going to be king anymore. And yet in his disobedience, impulsive, clawing back, Saul again sets himself against God to reclaim the throne that God has taken away. To continue this posture of obedience that's flexible before God. And I think we get a sense of inevitability from this scene. Because in verse 11... When the Lord tells Samuel, Saul has turned away from my commandments, he's no longer fit to be king. How, what is Samuel's response? It says, and Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Why is this Samuel's reaction? Because he knows, he knows this has been Saul's way, this has been his pattern, presumptuous, ambivalent, disobedient, and downplaying the need to listen, and ultimately, impulsively disobeying God, deep in the fiber of his being, this impulsive disobedience that he does not seem to be able to stop. And in the moment, a disobedience before God may seem like a choice, an alternative, where we kind of take God's will and we say, 
and God has this, but I have this situation, so let's just kind of marry the two, meet in the middle, have a concession here, find a way to bridge the gap between that high road and, of course, not the low road, but where I actually am. But we see in Saul that there is no middle pathway. There is none. It's obedience to God is to embrace him from the heart and to seek his will and to do otherwise To do otherwise is to reject him as God. This is attested to all through Scripture. The disobedience of Adam and Eve when they ate the fruit in the garden. Was that not a rejection of God? The disobedience of of Abraham when he tried to have children with his wife's servant, Hagar, to go ahead of God's plan. That was not, that was a rejection of God of what God was doing. The disobedience was a rejection of God when the people of Israel built a golden calf or when they were refused to go into the land and were afraid. And God said, every one of you that was afraid to enter the land, you will ultimately die in the wilderness as I raise up a new generation to enter the land. You have rejected me. And at every turn, this disobedience looked like a concession, maybe looked like a middle way, looked like a way to kind of put pause on life until things change and then obey. But instead, it turned out to be a complete and utter departure from God. And the damage of this still reverberates in our world today. And when I think of Saul, I think of Proverbs 25, 28. It's been ringing in my head this week. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A man without self-control is like a city broken into it and left without walls. That proverb came to me a few years ago and has meant a lot to me as as I think of, as I consider myself as a a pastor and and a husband and a father and what it would mean to disobey God and to just picture like the front wall of my house just caved in on my front lawn, a rubble of bricks, and what's, there's no protection anymore. What can come? What can go? There's nothing secure here anymore. And, and, and this, this, this self-control is not the main aspect of this passage, but certainly it's in play when we're talking about disobedience uh, to God and what it takes to be uh, controlled before him and, and obedient and live as he calls. Isn't that just the image of Saul in disobedience? A wall reduced to rubble, just the voice of the Lord going in, going out, passing through him, his whims, his way, no protection, lost, rejecting God. And over time, this pattern of disobedience, this impulse to disobey, it does calcify. It hardens. It becomes our normal state. It becomes our muscle memory. We don't even remember a time where we instinctively obeyed the Lord. Rather, our life is is made out, as is often so true, of of, of trying to obey and and, and not, and just impulsively not obeying. And and we see in this story this kind of social dynamic of everyone propping each other up in their disobedience, don't we? The people keep the calves, the people keep the sheep. Paul, you keep the king, you keep your monument. Everyone just kind of do his thing. Everyone disobey God. You do your way. Keep what's working, working for everyone. This disobedience is so now calcified into this kingdom. It's a massive rebellion, and it's just a, it's a collective rejection of God. In the next moment, I'm going to connect this to Advent. 
to the coming of King Jesus, the King we're looking for, we're just celebrating. And also as Cameron opened the service today, reminding us that we are in tension waiting for him to return and make all things right. But before we go there, I just want to look at one more subtle thing that's been going on in the story. And it's been playing in the background of the whole story, but we have to have eyes to see it, kind of first century, maybe Jewish eyes to see exactly what, what is being said here. We talked about the first command of God to Saul to, sacrifice, to devote this nation to, uh, to destruction, the Amalekites. We discussed that, and God specifies in verse 3, kill the ox and sheep, but what happens in verse 9? The best of the sheep and oxen are kept. And that's, that's, that's bottom line right there, right? That's for lawyers or people lawyer-minded in the room, right? Yep, see in verse 3, don't keep ox and sheep. Yep, verse 9, you kept ox and sheep, guilty. And that's what Samuel says. This classic line in verse 14, what is this bleeding of sheep and lowing of oxen that I hear? As a, as a bearing witness, animals in their cries, bearing witness to your disobedience before God. And what is Saul's response? The people took them to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And that's the last thing that Saul says before Samuel says, stop like yelling for a child to get away from the road, Samuel tells Saul, stop. You don't, you know what you're saying. The Lord has commanded you to devote to destruction, to leave nothing for him and to satisfy his wrath and his justice. And yet you, has kept the, you have kept these for a sacrifice. Because what Saul is saying with that word sacrifice, what he is talking about is a sacrifice where you take an animal, a great animal, and you, it's killed. And there's portions of it by the priests that are offered to the Lord. And the rest is kept for you to eat. This is what one commentator called a, a sacred barbecue. This is kind of the, the standard sacrifice where you still get to take, you get your take-home meal, your portion of meat from this. And Saul is admitting, God told us to do this thing, to remove all of this from, from the earth, and yet we have kept some of it that we may sacrifice to him. Yeah, God, we'll throw some of you. Here you go, here you go. And keep the rest for ourselves. And Samuel says, stop, stop. This is a rejection of God, a rejection of God. He likens it to witchcraft, which read in a moment, because he says in verse 22, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen, the fat of rams, nullifies his sacrifice. For rebellion is as a sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. It's maybe not the statement we would expect from Samuel in a moment like this. Maybe we too think that God is a little bit bloodthirsty. Look at how the chapter started with the Amalekites. Look at the law. Look at the sacrifice system. Look at Deuteronomy and Numbers and, and, and the different tiers and the sacrifices that they were to do. Look back to the Passover, killing the lamb and spreading the blood on the door to avoid being struck down by God and his judgment. It's blood. It's a lot of blood. 
And what is said here, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And this is a heartbreaking question because it's a question Saul, the king of Israel, the one of all the kingdoms should know the most. He should know it as well as a priest, as well as anyone. God wants an obedient people, a listening people. A man, a woman, a teenager who slows down to listen for his voice, to seek his path, and to understand that obedience is not an external choose-your-spot adventure type of thing where you pick the way and hope it leads to something close to what God has commanded, but springs internally from the heart, from a posture of, of humility before God. The the presumption, this this pushing back against God has no place in a heart like that, a heart that is humble before God. I think of of John chapter 4 when Jesus speaks to the, the woman at the well. He pauses his day just to sit and speak with her. And his questions keep coming at her, and she gets a little, you know, I think as any of us would. She throws out a theology question to Jesus to try to dodge the matters of the heart. She asks him, Jesus, you know, what mountain should we worship on, essentially? She's talking about worship on that mountain, worship on this mountain. And, and Jesus, Jesus sees the dodge and graciously responds, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. What mountain? What worship? How much blood? What what are we doing here? God is saying, I ordered that to cleanse your hearts. My delight is not in that in itself. It's not in your obedience observation to this external thing that I've commanded. Of course it's important because I said it. I said all of that because I want people who worship me in spirit and in truth, whose heart's posture before me is just simply seeking to be attentive and do what I say. And oh, that we would come to God openly in our spirits and in our inward beings and worship him in such a manner such that uh, the impulsive disobedience within us would continue in his grace to be worked out of us as we humble ourselves before him and seek his will. But King Saul doesn't see that. And Samuel tells him, your rebellion is as the sin of divination. It's like witchcraft to God, these things you're practicing to appease him. Your presumption, your pushing back against God is a sin and an idol worship. And God says, the disobedience of you, Saul, is a rejection of me. And so I have removed your throne. In this Advent season, we celebrate it because it is the season where, praise God, The rejected one has become the obedient one. The rejected becomes the obedient. That Jesus Christ, this God, rejected by King Saul, rejected by the people, rejected by us, that Christ himself took on the nature of man, though he was God, became small in the world's eyes, entering as a baby. I think of what Samuel said to Saul. He says it ironically. You're small in your own eyes, aren't you? Like he says that to him. Aren't you small in your own eyes? But you are the head of Israel. 
Saul was not small in his own eyes. He just built a monument to himself. Like, he was singing Sinatra, right? I did it my way, you know? My way before the Lord. Jesus actually became small as a baby. The, the God who on every mountain should be worshipped. Every mountain should be a monument to this God, yet he is the rejected one, but he makes himself small in our eyes to be born a baby that he might live a life of perfect obedience, even unto death, and redeem a disobedient people back to himself. This is the God who has been rejected time and time again by his people, and he has come to bring them back to himself. Hebrews chapter 10 gives an awesome uh, description of this. If you, if you want to turn there with me, that'd be great. Hebrews chapter 10. An interesting parallel to Samuel 15 in some of the things that are said here. Gives us an example of what this rejected God did in perfect obedience to come to this world with us. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And I said, and that's Jesus speaking in this context, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written for me in the scroll of the book. See the obedience. See the desire of God for obedience over sacrifice. And hear this, verse 8. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, for these were offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. It's the obedience of Christ. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. You see Christ coming into the world removing the first that the second might be established, removing this external obedience where the heart is impulsively disobeying and there's this disconnect with the Lord and establishing what? Establishing the second, himself as the perfect sacrifice and the perfect obedience in our place that we might be brought back to him. A body you have prepared for me. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Those are the words of an obedient king an obedient king who has come to redeem his people on the basis of his own obedience, no longer theirs. So we, in Christ, under this obedient king, do receive a freedom from sin. The Lord, when, when we are in Christ, his spirit dwells in us, that impulsive reaction and disobedience begins to go away, it begins to be diminished in his power as he gives us his power and his presence during Advent. So let us seek and repent to the Lord for the ways that we have disobeyed and, and take, as Paul said, these stories are a warning at times to us, a warning that we might not reject God but might stay as his people. He has kept us as his people by the work of the one who we rejected coming to be obedient for us. Let's pray.